As we've been talking together about the, the conversation that took place in the upper room recorded for us in John chapter 13 through 17, we've been kind of doing a series. The plan was that we would look at different parts of that conversation, that, that uh, time that they spent together in the upper room. And we would look at those um, uh, as we headed up to Easter. And then the, uh, the series would end and we'd celebrate Easter. But I tell you, the more that I've studied it and the more that I've worked on it, there's just so much here that I can't leave out enough to make our series stop before Easter. So after Easter... We're going to continue our series, and we're going to keep looking at this incredible conversation. Recorded for us in those five chapters, we have Jesus' last will and testament, if you will. It is what Jesus wanted his disciples to know before he left them. He tells them what they're to do. He explains to them how they're to do it. He, he gives them the, the essence of his ministry as he now hands it off to these who will carry it out in the world once he goes back to be with the Father. It's just an, just an amazing time. And so I'm so grateful uh, that John was able to record that entire conversation for us. And so we're going to continue to look at it and we're going to take our time through it and add a few weeks to the series. This morning I want us to begin in chapter 16 at verse 29, if you have your copy of Scripture handy, uh, look with me as we start in chapter 16. And uh, once again, we uh, find ourselves looking at a text that is particularly appropriate for what we're going through. Uh, as I've told you uh, the last couple of weeks, this wasn't planned. Uh, we, we planned the series many, many weeks ago. Um, but now as, you look, as I look at it, it, it's just amazing how it has fallen in line with our current needs. And with that in mind, I, I want to invite your attention to this part of chapter 16 as we consider tribulation and victory. Tribulation and victory. In, this, uh, in just a few verses, we're going to look at the last part of 16 and the first part of 17. And in these few verses... Jesus talks about some very important things that we want to follow along. We want to get and make sure we don't overlook as he has this discussion. And the first one that he talks about is his disciples. He begins this, this part of the conversation talking about his disciples. In verse 29, he says, his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. It's almost like they're relieved. There were so many times when Jesus had to use figurative speech, and there were, there were reasons for that depending on the circumstance. Sometimes there were folks who uh, were not ready to understand the things of the kingdom, and so he spoke in parables. Other times there, there were times when he was speaking about spiritual matters that really could not be... Um, 
uh, verbalized in very concrete and simple uh, elementary ways that the disciples could understand yet. Um, and so there, there were times when he would use these, this figurative language, and it's almost like the disciples are relieved, you know. It's, uh, Jesus, you're, you're talking to us straight, man. It, it's, we're a group of friends, and we've gathered around this table, and then uh, uh, there's, there's a suggestion at the end of chapter 14 that perhaps they got up from the table and moved somewhere else. And, and, but, but the point is that they're all together, and they're looking at him, they're enjoying the conversation, but in the midst of enjoying the fact that they're having a conversation, they are also terribly troubled by the content of that conversation. Because it is in this conversation that he has told them, one of you is going to betray me, one of you is going to deny me, and I'm leaving you. He says, but don't worry. Let not your heart be troubled. Uh, I am leaving, but when I leave, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And then he said, but but don't worry, because when I leave, I'm going to send another helper to you, and and he's going to be here to, to take care of you and continue what I've started with you. And so the disciples, the disciples say, uh, you now are plainly speaking and not using figurative speech. They're connecting with him on a whole new level. As a matter of fact, it is the same night that he calls them friends. No longer disciples, but friends. They, they're connecting on such a personal level. He says now in verse 30, now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. These are the disciples speaking. And they said, Jesus, you're, you're talking to us in plain language, and we want you to know that we get it. We understand. We know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. We believe you came from God because we get it. We understand what you're saying. And then listen to Jesus' response. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home, and will leave me alone. His question to them, do you now believe? It, it reminds us, doesn't it, of when he spoke to Peter just a few moments ago. Peter said, I'll follow you, I'll, I'll die for you, I'll do anything for you. And Jesus says to him, will you? Before the alarm clock goes off in the morning, you'll deny me three times. And here the disciples are saying, now, Jesus, we get you. We understand and we believe. And he says, do you believe? Because, guys, let me tell you, you're about to scatter and you're all going to run home and you're going to leave me alone. Jesus says to his disciples something that you and I need to seriously weigh in our own lives this morning. What he's saying to them is that your actions demonstrate what you believe. 
Do you believe, he says, he questions them. Because if, as I look at your actions, I know that you're about to abandon me. You're about to all run home. Surely, that was a part of his suffering. After the garden, as he was dragged from fake trial to, to fake trial, as he was beaten, as he was tortured, ridiculed and mocked, and then they finally drug him up Calvary's hill and they put him on that old rugged cross. Surely in the midst of all that suffering, part of the suffering was that he was alone. His friends left in fear. They ran home. Now we understand that John returned at some point because there is a conversation while Jesus hangs on the cross. He speaks to John at his feet. And so John, the one whom Jesus loved, Jesus' best friend, did come back at some point. But they all left him. He speaks of his disciples in this conversation. And he asks that question that you and I need to ask ourselves this morning. Do I believe? I mean, I, I, I accept the, the, the facts of the gospel. I have accepted my family's tradition of faith. But do I believe so much that my actions demonstrate my belief? He challenged the disciples and thereby challenged us with that one question. Thank you for saying you believe, but do you believe? He not only spoke about his disciples, but then he spoke about his divinity. He spoke about who he is as the Son of God. We continue our text here in verse 32, the last half of verse 32. He said, yet I am not alone. He just told them that the hour had come. Now that was, that was really something. He, he told them the hour is coming, indeed it has come, that you will be scattered each to his own home. And when he said that, he was, he was saying the hour is going to come when you, when you literally spread and go home. However, that hour has already begun because he knew at that moment there was already a mob that was gathering with their torches. Already a group was being rallied based on Judas's testimony and his, his betrayal. The hour had already come and this was already beginning to happen. And he said, you're going to leave me alone. But then in the last half of the verse, he says, yet I am not alone for the Father is with me. 
it had been that way for all eternity past. I didn't say for all history because even before history, they were. Before the world, they were. He, he says that I am not, you're going to leave me alone, but I'm not alone because the Father is with me. God the Father and God the Son are always one. The amazing thing of that statement is how it lays the groundwork and prepares us to hear him say something shocking just a few hours later. Because when Jesus is hanging on that cross, something happens. The whole world goes black. The lights literally go out all over the land. I believe what's happening at that moment is that God has not just placed sin on Jesus, but elsewhere, Paul describes for us what happened was that he became our sin. And in that moment of his becoming sin that we might receive his righteousness, in that moment of becoming sin, there is for the first time and only time in all of eternity, there is a separation between God the Father and God the Son. Oh, they are still, they are still God, but there is an emotional separation. There, there, is a, there is a difference in their relationship emotionally. And so when that happens, all of creation rebels it shuts down the lights so that it or no other being can watch, can see what's happening as the Creator suffers in such loneliness. And it is in that moment that Jesus, experiencing what the psalmist experienced to some degree, quotes the psalmist, and he quotes Psalm 22, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, in this, in this conversation with the disciples, he says, you guys are going to leave me alone, but, but I'm not alone. The Father's with me. But in just a few short hours, emotionally, he will feel a separation. And he will bring to mind those words of the psalmist, and instead of speaking of being with the Father, now for the first time ever, he feels forsaken. And notice that on the cross, he doesn't call him Father. Every other time in the Gospels, he calls him Father. But here he calls him my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? even when that emotional disturbance happened in their relationship, even when something changed because of sin, he was 
the servant of the Almighty God. He, he was the one carrying out the will of the Most High God. And so he refers to him, my God, my God. Where are you? Why have you forsaken me? He spoke in this conversation of his disciples. He referred to his divinity, his relationship to the Father, the God the, the Father and God the Son. And then he speaks of his peace. Notice in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He's been talking with them ever since the beginning of chapter 13. He's been talking with them throughout this conversation, explaining to them what he needed them to know. And he says, now I've told you all of these things for a reason. I've told you these things that you might have my peace. The world was in chaos. They needed his peace. Oh, they had no idea the kind of chaos they were about to see. They needed his peace. They were facing tribulation like they had never even dreamed of. And they needed his peace. And so he wanted them to hear, this is my peace, I'm giving it to you. We today are in a world of chaos, aren't we? So much confusion, such a strange time. In the midst of this chaos, we can have his peace. But I've learned something about his peace. I've learned that we have to choose it. It's a lot like joy in that we have to choose joy. We have peace. You can find it in Christ, but you have to choose it. You have to decide that I'm going to experience joy instead of focusing on the pain. You have to decide I'm going to experience peace instead of focusing on the chaos. So how do you choose it? How does that work? Will you believe what he says next. That's how you choose peace. You believe what he says next. And that is when he begins to speak of his victory. In verse 33, the last half of the verse, he says, in the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Friends, I wish that I could tell you that because we are believers, I hope you are a believer, I hope you've trusted in Christ. I wish I could tell you that if you've trusted in Him, then you don't ever have to worry about, about illness. I wish I could tell you that once we're believers, that we get protected from poverty, that we get protected from illness, from pain, from loss, from grief, from suffering. But I can't tell you that. Because I love you too much. I love you so much I need to tell you the truth. And the truth is exactly what Jesus says. 
in this world, you will have tribulation. We're going to go through hard times. But listen. But take heart, he said. I have overcome the world. And that is how you choose peace. You choose to believe that he has overcome. You choose his words of victory. Earlier, and we looked at it very carefully a week or two ago, earlier he said, let not your hearts be troubled. That, that's a, a passive tense. It, it's saying, watch your heart and don't, don't let anything happen to it. Let not your heart be troubled. Here, instead of a passive tense, he, he takes a, a, an active tense, an active verb. Look, he, he, says, he says, instead of looking at it from uh, protecting the heart, let not your heart be troubled. This time, he says, but take heart. Take action. That word means to be courageous, to choose it. Take heart. Be at peace. Be at joy. Be courageous. Because, he says, I have overcome the world. He overcame the world in his life as he conquered sin. The only person ever to live completely sinless. He overcame the world as he conquered sin in his life. He overcame the world as he conquered Satan in his death. See, Satan lost the day Jesus died for us. In Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in the last part of verse 14, it says that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to to lifelong slavery. You see, he, he conquered the world in his life when he conquered sin. He overcame the world in his death when he conquered Satan. And he overcame the world in his resurrection when he conquered death itself. So Jesus has this victory. He's the one who overcame, that's great. So what does that have to do with the disciples? Well, John, being the one who most likely was sitting closest to him, even at this point in the evening, being the one who loved him in a, in a personal friendship that was very deep and very meaningful to both of them, he later would write for us an explanation. Jesus overcame so what does that mean for the disciples? 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So he is the one who overcame the world. And now those of us who trust in him are also 
overcomers. We are, according to Romans, more than conquerors. We are overcomers. Jesus spoke on this night in this part of the text. He spoke of his disciples, spoke of his divinity. He spoke of his peace. Then he spoke of his victory. And then, very quickly now, he spoke of his purpose. As we continue to read, we find ourselves in the next chapter. Remember that the numbers, the chapters and the verses, those numbers were added later on. They are not necessarily a part of the inspired, perfect Word of God. These numbers are added later by us so that we can find the the right verse and we can communicate with one another on what we're reading and things like that. So I think verse 7, verse 1 of chapter 17 is just a constant flow from the end of 16 and should not necessarily be separated right there. Jesus says in the last part of 16, chapter 16, the last part, take heart, I have overcome the world. And then the verse, first verse of 17, when Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up his eyes to heaven. He said, I have overcome the world. He is speaking as if, because the hour has come and now he knows that the ball is rolling, that everything's in place, that it's all about to happen. So he speaks as if he has already overcome the world in his life and he already has overcome the world in his death and he's already overcome the world in his resurrection. He knows that the hour has come and it's all happening. So he speaks as if he has completed all of those things and he says, I've overcome the world. And then after speaking those words, He lifted his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ whom you have sent. He is speaking of his purpose. Now, I have said many times, as you have, as, as most Christians have, we've said many times that Jesus came to die for us. And that is absolutely true. But it is not the full story. He came to die for us, but even his death for us in order to provide salvation, that salvation was not his ultimate purpose. His death on the cross for us, the salvation he brings to us, all were means to the end of bringing glory to his Father. Everything he's ever done was to bring glory to to his father. His purpose was to glorify God the Father. And that takes us to the last thing that he spoke about, his own glory. We pick it up in verse 4 of 17. I glorified you. Remember, he's praying. He's talking to God the Father. I glorified you on earth 
having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Finally, at the end of this, at the end of this part of the conversation, Jesus speaks of his own glory. Having already spoken of his disciples and his divinity, of his peace and his victory and his purpose, he speaks of his own glory and he prays, God, now that I've done everything you asked me to do, return me to my place in glory. Return me to the glory that I knew even before the world was made. And we know that God answered his prayer. After Jesus died on that cross, they put him in a grave in a, in a borrowed tomb. On the third day, he came back to life. He walked among the disciples for 40 days. And then he ascended back to his glory. Back to be with the Father. And we know the Father answered this prayer. In Ephesians chapter 1, it says that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet, gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And there we find that God did answer his prayer. Glorifying Jesus again, glorifying the Son of God back to the right hand, the place of power and authority. And we know that Scripture says that it is there that Jesus even today intercedes for us. Romans chapter 8 and verse 34, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Last week, we talked about the fact that with the Holy Spirit, we know we are not alone. This week, we find out that we are not on our own because Jesus, the Son of God, the risen Lord, the King of kings, is seated at the right hand of the Father, fully restored to his place of glory, and he is there interceding for us. We are not on our own. He is there interceding for us. And for that, we have reason to rejoice and be grateful.